Good morning. Oh, yes, it is. Good. <laughs> it's uh, interesting what Nathan was just saying, that um, churches that are very alike and, and, and all this weird, that when I walked in this morning, it feels just like walking into our church, really. Uh, but we do think some things differently, but we look about the same. Uh, and uh, we meet in a school. We're about the same size church. We, we, we do things in two congregations. We meet in two different parts of Croydon, but... But other than that, yeah, we, we could be, I could be home, really, uh, with our church this morning. The welcome was the same. We went and prayed the same together. Um, just it, and things that Nathan has been sharing with me and John and Avril just have, have shown me, actually, that we are so alike in our vision for what we believe church is. Years ago, I remember, um, when I was at college training for ministry, there was um, a lot of stuff about church growth. How do you grow big churches? There was this thing about big churches. Isn't it funny? Everybody wants a big church. I actually, just change the subject entirely. I meet with a group of pastors in Croydon every week, and about 10, 15, 12 years ago, we said, uh, what was your vision for 10 years' time? And the first 10 guys all said, that we're, in a 10 years' time, we're going to have a church of 1,000 people, and we're going to have a factory unit on the Purley Way, which is our sort of out-of-town shopping area with Ikea and things. Some of you may have been to Ikea in Croydon. It's the only reason to go to Croydon, as far as I can see. <clears throat> and to come away again quite quickly. Um, and the first ten guys, all you know, all with quite small churches, all believed they were going to end up with a church of a thousand with a factory on the Purley Way. Uh, and I thought this could be very interesting in ten years' time that the Purley Way will be entirely churches, all of a thousand, all in a row, and you won't be able to travel on Sunday mornings down the Purley Way. Uh, everybody seems to want big churches. It seems to be what drives us. And it seems to be talking to, to, to John and the team here that actually that's not what drives you. What drives this church is the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. And that, that's why I'm thrilled to be here today. That's why I was thrilled to meet Nathan uh, a couple of years ago. And, and because we just seem to talk the same language. I can't surf. I can't even stand on a surfboard. But you know. The, the, yeah. But when I was at college, there was this thing about church growth, how you get a big church. And there were three sorts of churches that grew, they said. There were the churches that had great preaching ministries, yeah, where, they, where the, the guy that had the pulpit was a big name and everybody came to hear the sermon. The sort of Mark Driscoll in, in, in America type of church. You know the sort that everybody wants their sermons on the website? They grow, apparently. There's the churches that have great worship where you've got Matt Redman or somebody leading the worship regularly, and they grow. Um, and there are the churches that do social action and get out there, and, and, and they grow. But you can never have those ingredients all in the same church, according to the church growth people, or you never find it. You rarely find it. 15, 20 years ago, it just didn't exist. And actually, <laughs> I think what God is doing in this day is gluing the bits of the church he wants back together. I think God's been restoring the church for a long time now. In fact, I was listening to um, Branham. You remember the 1950s, 1960s? Probably most of you don't. There was a, there was a prophet called uh, Branham, wasn't it, I think? Uh, and he said that God w- was going to, uh, since the Reformation, since the 17th century, been gluing things back to the church that he wanted in his church, and that that would accelerate and I'll come back to that in a moment, but that God's been putting things back together. And this church is a sign of that. You are a people who clearly worship well, you clearly have good teaching, 
and apart from today, possibly, and clearly you are out there in the community in spades. I mean, there is not a church probably in London does what you guys do. Uh, it is incredible. And you don't need big church for that, do you? You just need the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven and a people of God who gather as the church who want that passionately. And, and I'm thrilled because that's sort of where we are as a church. We look at what Lifeline does in the community and we think, wow, we would love to do some of this stuff that you, you guys do. We do lots, but you guys have taken it to another level, really. And, and, and that means that you're genuinely what I think the Bible talks about church. I am passionate about the church. From the second I got saved, I was passionate about the church. Let me just tell you that my, um, my father's family were all exclusive brethren. Anybody been in the exclusive brethren? The exclusive brethren's a peculiar church who um, decided that they would be exclusive, basically, and that no one else was saved and no one else... Be- yeah, they couldn't talk with anybody else. They couldn't have radios, they couldn't have televisions, they couldn't have newspapers, they couldn't have semi-detached houses because that you might be linked with somebody else. And it was, it was a very, very um, strange cult, really. So we grew up, my father ran away from home. Uh, when I was a small child, actually, my, f- the, my family cut us off from them. So my family hate religion. I'm so pleased that my family hate religion because I hate religion as well. I love Jesus. I love his church, but I hate religion. And again, I come here and I meet a bunch of people who I think probably are on the same wavelength, which is why I feel at home. We, we, we grew up in, and I didn't become a Christian therefore until I was in the Air Force. I was a navigator. I was flying during the Falklands War when I became a Christian. And from the second I became a Christian, it was like God put something in me that just loved his church. I absolutely am potty about church. I think it's God's plan. It's God's, we are God's body, aren't we? His hands, his legs, his eyes, his ears. We, we are that on earth. We're the body of Christ. We're the people of God. We're a royal priesthood. What does that mean that we're a royal priesthood? We used to say in churches like ours that a royal priesthood meant we didn't have to go through a priest to get to God. That was what we used to teach, that it was all about you. Now you don't have to go through a priest. You can go directly to God yourself. But it means so much more than that. It actually means that you are the priests to Dagenham. Dagenham doesn't have any other priests but the body of Christ. That when Dagenham needs to see God, they will see him in you. Doesn't matter whether you've been saved two seconds or 25 years or some of you much longer. You are now priests to Dagenham. I don't really know Dagenham. I know two things about Dagenham. It used to have a car plant and it used to have some gold pipers. <laughs> this is all down south as far as I'm concerned. Although I'm in Croydon, although God called me to Croydon, that was after 23 years in the Air Force and originally coming from West Bromwich. So I'm an Albion supporter. <laughs> Premier League. <laughs> Occasionally. That's why they call us boing, boing, baggy, because we bounce up and down the league so often. That's not what I want to talk about, really. It's just by way. <laughs> if you've got Bibles or your iPads or whatever you're using, Dagenham, um, if you want to turn to Ephesians 4...
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, it's somewhere around there. Ephesians chapter 4. It's, it, Ephesians is, is God's treatise on his church as far as I'm concerned. And chapter 4 is my favourite chapter. I come from a New Frontiers church now, so you'd expect Ephesians 4 to be important. Um, but I'm just going to read the first six verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I love that. I love that passage. I love the fact that God's called us to be one. I think it's our most important ministry. I think it is what God is restoring now to the church. Maybe 30 years ago he restored things of the Spirit. Maybe he's restored things like apostles and prophets. Maybe, you know, people have got different ideas of when he restored things. My belief is that in this decade or so, God is restoring the oneness to us. And I'll go on, hopefully, to, to illustrate that as we go and, and to why I believe that. The first thing I want to say is, it's got to happen. Do you believe it's going to happen that we will be one? It's got to happen, hasn't it? Because it's the last thing Jesus prayed for. It is the very last thing. On the night before you die, if you know you're going to die the next day, what do you think about? Somebody asked me this question the other day. What do you think about in the last few hours of life, I wonder? If you've ever come close to death, maybe you know, things flash through your mind. They say you think about your life, maybe your regrets or whatever else. For Jesus, he prayed and he prayed for the church. He prayed that we would be one. In John's Gospel, chapter 17, he says, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. If Jesus prayed it, I think it's going to happen. I don't think it's pie in the sky that, you know, we've got to wait for the end times to come. I think actually it is something that he will restore to his church and he's doing so. Just the fact that what you're building here is, is similar to what we're building over there and yet we never knew each other says to me that the Holy Spirit must have had something to do with it. The fact that our church is about 30 years old and your church is about 30 years old says to me, God started something back then. The fact that I met, um, had, a, had an email through, through Nathan actually introducing me to someone, I had an email from, from a guy who said, I've been asked by Evangelical Alliance to try and gather a, a, a leader in each London borough, the 32 boroughs, together. Guys who are working for unity, not the old sort of ecumenism, which is the word for let's all sit there and be boring, um, it's, 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 it's Greek for let's all look at our navels and decide why we don't like each other, I think, ecumenism, or something like that, anyway. Um, yeah, but no, real unity, where, where actually we're doing things because we love Jesus, because we want the kingdom to come, because we love church, 
and because we love what God's doing, and we hate religion. And, and I met with these few guys a few months ago, um, and five of us. There's a guy from Newham, there's a guy from Haringey. Uh, it shows you how much of a not a southerner I am. I had, the, I had the phone call and said, would you come to this meeting and be one of the steering group? I said, yeah. And he said, we've got a guy from Newham, a guy from Haringey, a guy from um, Merton or somewhere. And, and I said, oh, don't we need anybody from north of the Thames? <laughs> so they've sort of got my card mark now. I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to London. Um, but we met, five of us met, and then we met again, and it was uh, nine of us uh, a couple of months ago. And in uh, next Tuesday, Tuesday coming, 32 of us are going to meet. And there's never, ever, ever, ever been a meeting in London of every single London borough's church represented in genuine unity in the history of the world. It has never happened. That's one of the reasons why I think God is doing something. God is up to something. Jehovah Sneaky is on the move. Because <laughs> when I met with these guys, I had no idea of the stuff that they were doing. I, didn't, I thought, a bit like Nathan said, I thought we were the weird ones who were doing this and that Croydon maybe had got something that God was doing. And I find out new and miles ahead, Haringey and miles ahead. There's so much to learn from these other guys. And yet there's another borough who said, yes, we've got a unity movement. We started it on the 12th of December 2011 when we got your email inviting us to the meeting. <laughs> so different people at different stages, but God is stirring people up uh, for genuine heart-joining wonderful conversations, loving each other, friendship-type unity. I'd no sooner got this uh, contact with the, the 32 London boroughs, and I'm so excited about Tuesday. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I know God's in it. I'd no sooner got that than I got an email from a guy called Roger Sutton, who's in Manchester. Roger Sutton has been asked to gather all of the cities and towns in the same way across Britain, a leader uh, or a team from each city and town across Britain. He's got over 50 cities and towns now who he's got contacts with. And we're all going to meet up in February in Swanwick for three days. And again, the first time ever. There's been unity stuff. There's been like bishops and people meeting and sitting down with quills and signing documents promising that we'll do stuff together and, 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 and then just arguing about how many votes you get at the table and that kind of There's been the sort of trade union unity, if you know what I mean. But there's never been a meeting where it's, actually, yeah, we're getting on with it and we're seeing God moving and we just want to share it and we're thrilled. And there's going to be the first time ever for the nation in February. That's another reason why I believe what I want to share with you today is so important. I believe God is doing something, just putting us in touch with each other. And, and actually, when I come here and I look at you, if somebody four years ago had said Lifeline Dagenham, I'd have thought it's something to do with a hospital. Must be a hospital charity. Maybe they raise money for beds or something. I don't know. Lifeline. It has that sort of, you know, you, you sort of do, 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 do. And that's a... but, but now I know you guys. I feel I do because I know Nathan and I've met with John and Avril and, and others. And I feel, yeah, they're as mad as us. Yeah. <laughs> but when Jesus prays for unity, we would be one. The word be one really means abundant unity, 
Complete unity. Nothing left out unity. Thrilling unity. The unity that God designed it to have. The perfect unity. When, when Jesus says, you know, that, that he wants us to be one, that's the, that's the word he's got. It's not that we'll have some meetings and we'll sit down and things. It, it's that there will be such a thrill at being the people of God together. The term unity of, is, is, is therefore a unity of purpose. It's a unity of direction. It's a unity of beliefs. It's abundant unity. I like the word abundant. It's one of those, you know, when Jesus says, I've come that you may have life in its fullness. That's what we love. It's, it's our mission statement of our church. Our church, current Jubilee Church, exists that we can have life in all its fullness through Jesus Christ, through his glory. And, and anything else fits. So we always say to people in our church, you've got anything else that fits that, you can do it. Which is just about anything that's not overt sin, really, isn't it? Even that, no, no. Um, and actually, that's the model of the Trinity, isn't it? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in that kind of unity. They are three distinct people in total harmony with one another. The word that was used when they were trying to put the creeds together and they were trying to see how the, how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit worked together, they came up with this word perichorosis. And perichorosis means really um, choreography. It means that they dance together. That's the best that the church fathers could come up with to describe how the Trinity worked together. They danced together, or dance if you're Southern, together. My daughter's real let down to the family. She's gone to Bath University and now she's coming home saying she goes to Bath. I mean, it's just... <laughs> real choreography of moving in some seamless way together. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being one. And we're that body that is meant to be that kind of one. One in this room, one with the, with the, with the whole church. This isn't actually a sermon today about ecumenism. I'm not sort of suggesting that your, your elders or leaders need to sort of start meeting with the church down the road. Because actually you can't have one unless you're willing to be one where you're sat right now. Jesus put the words into Paul's mouth when Paul says, we're ministers of reconciliation. <clears throat> reconciliation means taking all the bits that are smashed everywhere and bringing them back in. It's like sort of smashing a vase and then gluing it all back together. When you finish gluing, there's no sign of any glue. It's just the vase again. You and I are ministers of reconciliation. Our calling on our lives is to give everything we've got. Paul, Paul said in Ephesians, be eager to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit is bringing. Everything we've got to bring reconciliation and eager for that unity. I'd like to suggest that we're not always that eager. I'd like to suggest that we're not always keen to be ministers of reconciliation. I'd like to suggest that actually sometimes we quite like the fact that some people don't like us. Human beings. We're like kids in the playground, you know, being our gang, but we don't like that gang. It's deep within our fallen flesh, that sense of push some apart to make us feel good where we are. But our call on our lives is that we would be one, that we would be ministers of reconciliation, that we would be people who would be eager to maintain the unity. I'm still only halfway down my first page. I don't know if I've got to this. Um, but how do we reach that unity? That's what I want to get to today. Because the history of the church isn't very good, is it? 
You know, we started with, with, with Christians just in cities, gathering and enjoying themselves. And somehow in the first four days of the church, it went wrong. We know it went wrong in the first few days of the church because Paul has to write all these letters to people like the people in Corinth who seem to have fallen out. You know, some of you follow Peter, some of you follow Apollos, some of you follow Paul. It, it's so ingrained within us that we fall out with one another. And the history of the church gets, it sort of escalates so that by the time you get to the, the time of the, when Rome split, split with the, with the East and then Rome which was us at that time, of course. We were all the one church. You get the Reformation, and you get Protestants. You know, the problem with calling ourselves Protestants is Protestants label ourselves as protesters. So we keep on protesting. So we feel it's our duty to protest about everything we don't like in the church. So we protest about the Sunday school, or we protest about the worship, or we protest about the way the, the chairs are laid out, or we protest about the... You know, it's, it's in our DNA to protest. And so the church splits and splits and splits. And we've got this strange thing today of just so many different churches. And, of course, we don't talk to them. Do you know, five years ago, I was meeting with these, these church leaders in Croydon, and I said to an Anglican vicar, who's a good friend of mine, um, did he know any of the black leaders? We really had no connection with the black churches in Croydon. There was the white churches, and they had unity, and then there were all the black churches, which actually outnumber now the white churches. They're growing like topsy. And and, and by black churches, I mean those that have sort of come from Nigeria or whatever and are um, particularly led by black leaders and have a certain style. I'm sure you know what I mean. Um, Nobody knew any black leaders. And when I spoke to this guy who was an Anglican vicar, he said, oh, we've got three black churches, hire our halls. I've never met them. This was a really nice Anglican vicar, a really nice guy, a good friend of mine, and he'd never thought that actually there were three churches who met in his building who he had never even ever spoken to. I'm I'm pleased to say now that they they speak together, they meet together. And in fact, last year we had an event at um, Crystal Palace Football Club where we do a lot of work, and we had a thousand Christians in a marquee on the pitch, and the whole event was to celebrate the unity of the black and white church in Croydon. And there was 500 or so black and 500 or so white faces, and we had a great time together. In five years, we've been able to realize that, that we've got a, a gross sin in the church in Croydon that we've worked hard to, to try and um, heal. We've, made, we've been eager to maintain the unity. And that's not easy, because we believe some different things. If I did a poll in here and said, okay, how many of you are pre-millennial, how many of you are post-millennial, and how many of you are amillennial, you'd probably all say, we haven't got a clue what you're talking about, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there are churches who will fall out over the fact you've got to be one, and in this church we're all pre-post or A, or a friend of mine says, I'm pan-millennial, I'll wait and see how it all pans out. I'm still only on my first page. Um, the history of the church, therefore, is about falling out with each other. Uni- unity that, that Jesus prays for is actually impossible to get if it's about debating theology. It's impossible to get if it's about worrying about the colour of the carpet or the style of worship or, or, or whatever. You can't get unity if those are higher up your agenda than your relationship with the person you sat next to. 
I have a mantra which I, I trot out to Croydon church leaders, which is that relationship matters more than doctrine. And when anybody hears it for the first time, they argue with me. And they argue with me. And I, I, I met with the, the churches in Purley just before Christmas to lead their retreat. And I didn't know a couple of the guys there. And they heard me say it for the first time. And I knew what was coming. They had this big argument. You cannot be serious, Paul. How we, one guy said to me, how can we put someone out of the church if a relationship matters more than, than, than doctrine? <laughs> Somebody else quoted the one verse that says, you know, have nothing to do with them and forgot the rest of the, all the Bible. Yeah, we, we have, and you think, we seem to, to have this thing in church, uh, make every effort to keep the church pure, or make every effort to keep the church, you know, sort of um, thinking the same way, make every effort to make the church look the same. It's not, it's make every effort to keep the bond of unity, be eager to keep the unity. I want to suggest to you that, that therefore your relationships matter Every relationship you've got in here now, every relationship you have, matters more than disagreeing with someone. If it doesn't, you can go back to the Reformation. We can start burning people at the stake again. Because, you know, if they've got the wrong doctrine, well, our relationship with them doesn't matter. What matters is that they get their doctrine right. If they're not going to repent, we'll burn them. Or we'll hang, draw, and quarter them. That's what happened in those days, wasn't it? They, those things mattered more than a human being and our relationship with them. And all right, maybe we're not going to go back to that. Maybe the law would not let us. But we can be just as separatist. We can be just as unlikely to be people who are ministers of reconciliation. I think God in our day is restoring something. Unity is achieved when people stand together pursuing a purpose. Not a purpose as in, well, let's have a mission at the football stadium but a purpose to be ministers of reconciliation, a purpose to be eager to keep that unity. Jesus didn't send his disciples out to debate with the world. He sent them out to love the world as he loved them. You know, oi, oi, we're going to praise the Lord. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you. And not he loves you if you get your doctrine like our church has got our doctrine. Not he loves you if you have your worship the way our church has its worship. Not he loves you if you'll say this prayer and, 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 and you sort of from now on promise to, you know, dib, dib, dib or whatever it is that you're doing. He loves you. Jesus sent his disciples out with the message that they were to go to all groups, all nations, all ethnic peoples, the implication being beyond the Jews, beyond what was comfortable, he sent them out with a unifying challenge into the world which had injustice and hopelessness with a message of love, which was a unifying message. He sent them out to all cultures, all beliefs, all social classes. But today, in this, what we are primarily is an information age, aren't we now? An information society. What we've got is people are, are becoming very inwardly focused. It's dead easy to be inwardly focused today. You know, you can go home with your central heating and your double glazing and your broadband piped in and not talk to anybody else. Have you noticed that? You can have terrible BO and never know it. <laughs> Isn't it strange how geeks who do that... No, no, we won't go there. I, I call it meotheism. We want the gospel message that puts me at the centre. 
you know, and so, oh, well, why did you leave that church? Oh, well, the sermon wasn't right for me. Or um, the pastor didn't call me when I was sick. Or the church never reached out to me. And we've got meotheism is in our culture today. The me, and, and don't deny it, it's in all of us. You know, it is in all of us. We're fine whilst everything sits comfortably within what we can accept. But if, if Nathan stood up next week and said to you, okay, um, you know, I, I've got to tell you, you know, I, I, I can't think of something that would be... I, I've, you know, I, I smoke 20 a day and always have done in the bike shed at the back, of, you know, and, and nobody knows, you know. People go, oh, dear. Actually, you might do, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody said to me the other day, when did the church make smoking a sin? I had to think about that. I thought, well, Spurgeon smoked, didn't he? You see pictures of Spurgeon or drawings and, he, and, and some of his letters. And, you know, apparently, he used to have his disciples around him in his class with his cigar or his pipe. So it clearly wasn't a sin then, but at some point, we made it a sin. I digress. Anyway, um, I'm good at that. <laughs> Digressing, I mean. I don't usually use notes, so this is a bit strange for me. Um, meotheism. And churches, we play into that, so we try and adapt churches to attract meotheists. Yeah, we try that seeker-sensitive churches came over from the states, isn't it? Where we've got to make everything so friendly that everyone will feel like like it's okay. That's an impossible climate for unity. The gospel challenge isn't meotheistic at all. Actually, do you know what the most popular song is at funerals now? My way. You've been told that before, yeah. My way. I did it my way. The most popular... That's terrifying, isn't it? I, I once did a funeral in a crematorium in Holland um, and uh, when I was a chaplain in Germany. And, and the, the, um, the guy was the head of the uh, British Legion in Holland. And I did his funeral. And he had my way to go into the church. So I was walking ahead of the coffin... Uh, in, in all the black reformed robes that you have to wear as a chaplain and I was walking ahead trying to keep a straight face because we're walking towards the, uh, the, 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 the thing where they put the coffin in and it's got curtains around it. And it says, and, and the song says, now the end is near and so I face the final curtain. And I just got the giggles. <laughs> I, I, I had to walk very slowly so that by the time I'd got to the front and turned around I'd managed to control the giggles. <laughs> You see, what, what this church does a lot of, I know, is bring community. It builds community. It's about community. Within here and actually out into Dagenham and, and other places, building community. But have you ever stopped to think community means with unity? It's only the church that can build community. You know, the big society, or we're all in it together, all these uh, political statements at the moment, we need community and all of that. Actually, you can't have community, you can't have that unity without the church, because fallen state is not to have unity. It's only because Jesus prayed it, it's only because we're filled with his spirit, that we could possibly be people who can make every effort to keep the bond of peace, and every uh, be ministers of reconciliation. There's no other ministers of reconciliation but the people of God. There's people who have a go at it, but actually we are equipped for it by his spirit. We are so loved and know his love that we can love without having to be separate in any way. That we can forgive. We can be people who can be, not just tolerate, but live with people of all kinds of sin. That's what Jesus did, wasn't it? 
We are the people who can truly bring community with unity. But only when our focus is off ourselves and onto the mission of Jesus. Jesus wasn't asking God to meet the individual needs of those remaining in the room with him that night. He wasn't saying, oh, Father, you know, help Peter to be a really good fisherman. You know, help James and John to sit at my right and my left when, when, when they go to glory. He wasn't thinking about the individual careers of his... It just it was about, Lord, they would be one even as you and I are one. And, and that that oneness was for the benefit of all mankind. Because that's always been the Father's mission. For the benefit of all mankind. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are the sort of basic background history of why we're here and everything. You come to chapter 12 and you start the, the real people, not the real people, but you know what I mean, the stories of people like Abraham. And the first thing it says about Abraham is, God says, I will bless you, Abraham, that you can be a blessing. Not I'll bless you so that you can be, you know, somebody. Not meotheistic blessing, but a blessing so that you can bless. I believe God has blessed Lifeline so that you can bless. I believe he's blessed Jubilee so that we can bless. I believe he's blessed every one of you in here so that you can bless. But we know, if we're honest with each other, that that's, that's not always how we see it, is it? Do you want a big argument to split a church? Talk about tithing. Preach on tithing and see how many people come up to you at the end to give you an excuse why they can't possibly tithe. Abraham was blessed. Ephesians, we read from Ephesians 4, but Ephesians 3 verse 10 says um, that, that, that all of this is so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities. The manifold wisdom of God. That we are given all of this so that we can bless, so that we can go out there. In the Lord's high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed that the the, the focus of the apostle would be moved from themselves to each other and from each other to the world. So how do your prayers compare with that? How do your plans as a church compare with that? Where is our prime focus? I was talking to a church the other day that's a fairly new church plant, uh, two or three years old, and they said, oh, we don't do any social action at all. We, do, we don't do any of that. What we're trying to do is get to love each other so much that when we've got it right, we'll be able to go out into the world. I'm not a gambling man particularly, but I would like to go out and bet that they never go out into the world. Because <laughs> I've never got it right. If they do manage it, it'll be very interesting. Where's our prime focus? You see, when I was in the Air Force, um, I was very briefly a baby pilot. Uh, I became a navigator eventually, and the reason I became a navigator is because I can't land a plane. And <laughs> I can take off beautifully. I can do barrel rolls and loops. I can do everything in the air you wanted me to do. I can drop bombs on people. I can do all of that. But as soon as you can't get the aspect of coming back into land, I just couldn't quite get it right every time. So sometimes I'd come in like, sort of more like that. And, and the, when they eventually got rid of me as a pilot, the, the flying instructor said, Barrett, it's you or the undercarriage and it's cheaper to get rid of you. <laughs> 
And I was very relieved because I would have killed myself and anyone else in the plane eventually. I just couldn't do it. It's just something not in my brain to be able to land a plane. So if you're ever on a plane with me and the pilot dies, find somebody else to land it. As a... <laughs> there's a, there's um, no, I won't, no. I, won't I, heard, I heard a blonde joke the other day, but I won't tell it. Uh... <laughs> oh, all right then, because see you want. There's, there's a blonde flying along in a plane and the pilot collapses at, at the at the um, at the uh, the wheel thing. I said that. <laughs> she, she gets on the radio and says, help, 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 the pilot's collapsed and I don't know what to do. And the air traffic control says, uh, oh, that's fine. He said, I know the aircraft type you're in, I fly it myself. I'm an expert. I've talked many people down in this situation. Can you give me your height and position? He said, yeah, I'm five foot four and I'm sitting in the front seat. He said, okay, okay. Repeat after me. Our Father, who art in heaven... <laughs> My daughter is blonde, and she gets blonde jokes, so that's fine. Anyway, um, so we've got this, we've got this uh, situation where I'm a baby pilot. The first thing you do as baby pilots in the Air Force is you go through all the, all the sort of background stuff of why you fly and all the rest of it. And what they seriously teach you is that when, when people first started flying, many, many uh, pilots were killed because when you fly into clouds, you lose all sense of, of, of where you are and which way up you are. And, and believe me, it is totally possible to fly into cloud and end up upside down and not believe that you're upside down. Totally possible. Um, and they, sh- they put you in rigs to demonstrate this so you can, you can learn it safely yourself. Uh, but many years ago, pilots would often be killed. They'd fly, they'd maneuver in cloud, they would end up upside down. And if you're upside down, your wings don't work. So you start descending. So the altimeter is, you know, 15,000, 14,000. You see this, and you think, oh, there's something wrong. You're in cloud, and I must be the right way up. So what you do is you pull back on the sticky thing, and you put power on, and that means you climb. But if you're upside down, and you pull back on the sticky thing, and you put power on, you just descend faster. So it's 9,000, 8,000, isn't it? And you, so you pull a bit more, and you push a bit more, and then you bang, and you plant a new baby pilot, and that's how you grow pilots, you see. You, 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 uh, you hit what's called cumulogranite, and it ruins your whole day. So there's a lot of um, part of your initial training is what to do when you fly into cloud. And what you do is you look at the instruments. And you have a thing called an artificial horizon which shows you where your wings are in relation to the horizon. Even if you're upside down, it will show you. But even when you look at it, you just don't believe it. Because everything in your body says, I would know if I was upside down. I can't be upside down. So pilots would still be killed because they would still not trust the instruments. So now there's lots of the training where they put blindfolds on you so you can only see the instruments and all the rest of it so that you do trust your instruments. I tell you that because I think we live in a world which we're born into which utterly flies upside down, which lives our life Utterly the wrong way. God says my ways are not your ways, doesn't it? And when we become Christians, it's very easy to add Christianity to our lives and live it and try and correct it and try and do life the way you've always done it. As opposed to going to Jesus, who is the teacher, who is the the one who's given us the instruments and and fly his way, where you turn back and and you are able to live life the way he's called us to. And... I know you know all of that as a church. But why are people meotheists? Why, why, 
Because our churches are inclined to be meotheist. We're inclined to build church the wrong way up. We're inclined to build church so we want a church of a thousand people in a factory unit on a pearly way. Where our ambition is to be big, not our ambition is to actually fulfill what Jesus called us to. And I know I can say that safely here because I know I'm amongst friends and I know your heart is the same as my heart. But I just want to say it in case one or two people haven't heard it before. Our ambition is not to be big. We want the kingdom to come. We want people to be saved. We want churches to grow. But to grow because we're aiming at what Jesus has caused us to aim for. To grow because we're the right way of correcting and living the way he's called us to be. And if our churches are about serving, if our church is about giving away, if our church is about worshipping and praying and fellowship and loving one another and having relationships mattering more than doctrine, even though doctrine is precious and matters, then we can fulfill the, the Great Commission. Then we can be the people of God. Then we can be taken by him to, to a place where the church has never been in the last 2,000 years, where we can be one. I was with um, a church in America a couple of years ago, and every so often they take their offering and they just give it away. And on one particular Sunday, they took it down to a little chapel of about 20 people. This church has got like 7,000 people. So their, their Sunday offering is a lot of dosh. A lot of dosh. I mean, 7,000 people all giving, you know, and they tend not to do direct debit and things in the States. It tends to be you know, in, the, in the plate that day. So you've got a massive amount of money, big church, big everything, and they just gave it to a little fellowship of about 40 people. It was more than they had in a year, this church. They totally disagreed with that church on several points of doctrine. This church had bad-mouthed them in the community at many times before. But they said, now these people love Jesus. And they gave it away. So I came back and I met with some, some leaders in New Frontiers and I said, what a great thing it was. And the first thing one guy said to me, he said, yeah, but we'd never give it to the Catholics, would we? <laughs> Did you hear anything? It's like, I, I organized a breakfast every, we've done it for about five or six years now. We started five or six years ago, we organized a breakfast for every church leader in Croydon. Croydon's got 400,000 people, so it's probably got about 250, 280 churches, we're not sure. We've got about 240 we know about. Um, so, we get about 80 church leaders to the breakfast and, and out of a pool of about 120 who would come now. So we, we see a lot of them come to this breakfast once a term. When we've started to do the first one, I said, right, we're going to have a breakfast. We're going to put it on. We've got somebody to one side. So there's about 18 of us in the room from different churches. We're going to have a breakfast. And the first thing was, okay, who are we going to invite? All the church leaders. Great, yeah, great. All the church leaders. That's a really great idea, Paul. Uh, but we can't invite the Catholics, obviously, because they're not a proper church. Uh, oh, and we can't invite the, the, and we can't invite, and by the end of the conversation with these 18 people in the room, we'd got a breakfast for 18 people in the room. <laughs> we said, no, and we invited them all. And the first ever breakfast, we had a Catholic priest come in without his collar on, and I had a, a black Pentecostal leader come in, and I had a guy from a fairly conservative Brethren church come in, and, and I took the Brethren guy, and I sat in between the Catholic priest and the, and the black <laughs> Now, I know, being naughty, that before the breakfast, he would consider the guy on one side of him to be a representative of the Antichrist and the other guy to be demon-possessed. <laughs> After the breakfast, he came to me and said, 
what wonderful men you sat me with. Thank you so much. We just got so much in common. I would have never thought that we could ever talk that way. Do you know why? Because they all love Jesus. Yet we worry about the fact, well, they might love Mary a bit as well. I want to I come to an end because I don't know how long I've got, but I must be by now because I keep having asides. But I, 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 in the Fellowship of the Rings, you know, the, the um, Tolkien thing that was made into a film. The film was great. I loved it. It was a bit long, but, you know, it, that's okay. If you watch it at home, you can get up and get the loo lots and stop it and start it. So that's what I did. But we watched it. And uh, there's a bit missing from the book. There's a whole chunk missing from the book. And uh, 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 it's 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 that bit where the eight have got to re- accompany the ring bearer on his journey. They're 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 men, they're hobbits, they're dwarves, and they're elves. Do you remember that bit in the book? It wasn't in the film. Well, the bits in the film, but not this particular episode. And they've got to go through the land, um, uh, through different parts of the land to get to defeat the Dark Lord, not Darth Vader. If you haven't seen the film, a different Dark Lord. Um, and, and these are historically divided groups. The elves and the dwarves and mankind and, and the, and the um, hobbits don't get on, don't work together. So it's brought together, these eight people from different sort of things. And, and um, as the Fellowship approaches Lothlorien, which is an elf region, the elf god refuses to let Gimli, the dwarf, because they're real enemies, he, Gimli can't... The, remember Gimli the dwarf, the little guy with the red hair and the axe? He, he won't let him in. And so he says, because they're arch enemies, he'll plot out the land. He'll see where their vulnerabilities are. So the only way he'll let him in is if he blindfolds him. So he can't see the land. And Gimli's protesting about this. So um, there's all these arguing going on. Aragorn, the group leader, suggests that if one of them must be blindfolded, and the indignity of that, they'll all be blindfolded. That's a wonderful, wonderful step of unity. But then... Legolas the elf protests and he says, no, you can't do that. We, you know, wh- wh- why should we all be blindfolded just because of this one enemy who's coming in? And he says, uh, alas for the folly of these days, here all are enemies of the one enemy and yet I must walk blind while the sun is merry in the woodland under leaves of gold. That's why it's hard to read. Um, and then Haldir, another character, says, indeed, Folly it may seem, but indeed in nothing is the power of the Deus Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. In other words, the enemy wins if we're not one. And I want to suggest to you just just finally that actually the oneness of the church is what God is restoring today. We can see it in the signs of things that are happening. Prophetically, it's been said many times, Branham, who hated ecumenism, who's preached against ecumenism, just before he was sort of disgraced in ministry, sadly, said actually he felt God was saying that there would come a time when the church would be brought into unity and it would be the very last thing that God would restore. Now, I'm not one of these end-time conspiratory... Conspir- yeah, I'm 2012. You know, I don't believe the Lynx advert. that It's, you know, it's in the new Lynx advert with, with, uh, with uh, Noah and the ark. And the... <laughs> Yeah, and all the girls coming on board, and they call the links, you know, the end time perfume or underarm spray or something. There's a lot of the end time stuff for 20. I'm not into that type of stuff, really, but I do believe that in our day, God is restoring unity. And I do believe it's only going to come when each one of us 
can seriously embrace that we've been called to be ministers of reconciliation. There's loads more I could say, but I, I, I won't. We've, we've gone on long enough, I think. It'd be great to get into some worship, which I think what you do next. But let me just pray first. Father, I just thank you that, that there is a church here uh, where we've got so much in agreement and so much that we do the same. But Father, I, I, I thank you for joining our hearts in so many ways. But Father, I pray that you join our hearts here and, and, and elsewhere to churches where we haven't got so much in common, where churches where they're just people who know you and are trying to find their way. Father, I pray that you would build your church. Jesus, you prayed, you said that you would build your church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. I pray for that kind of church to be in Dagenham, to be across London, to be across our nation. I pray, Father, that you would use these brothers and sisters here who've glimpsed your kingdom and love your kingdom to be catalysts in that, in Dagenham. And, and, and I pray that, Father, relationships where there have been broken relationships in families in this room, that by your Holy Spirit you'd make ministers of reconciliation of every single person here, that they would be the people who would go and restore relationships. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.